name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you, friends, for joining me for a kickoff episode of Liberty in Virtue on Anchor.com. Hopefully this is being uh, distributed via Anchor all over to Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, so on and so forth. I'm your host, Brother Cody Bancroft, and today I wanted to uh, give you a brief introduction to my background, where I'm at now, as opposed to where I was, say, uh, this time last year. Uh, as well, I wanted to uh, give you an example of, of what I've uh, coined Christo, Christ-centered uh, libertarianism. So, uh, just philosophically, it's, uh, it's theological and philosophical, so not big L libertarianism as in belonging to the LP National Party, but small L, big C Christ, little L libertarianism. But first, yeah, I wanted to give a brief uh, introduction to the background and where I'm at, what um, the congregation I belong to, its theology, its history, um, briefly, because uh, it, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, I would describe myself as a Reformed Lutheran in keeping with the the Lutheran or Evangelical um, Catholic uh, Reformation of the 15 and 1600s, uh, you know, following Luther somewhat, but also those who came after him to a degree. Um, and that might confuse some people because when I say Reformed, um, you know, uh, people might get the idea that I mean strictly uh, Calvinistic or predestinarian or Presbyterian, so on and so forth. So uh, distinctions do need to be made, and it, it's it's really um, there is some tension there to be had, but honestly. Um, that's more in the past than anything else. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna square away some um, different disputes and ideas, um, and and give a little uh, brief uh, historical introduction to um, my church, which is uh, West um, Carmel Congregational Church. Um, firstly, before I go all the way back, I do want to say that. Um, my church was in this uh, body known as the United Church of Christ, um, and that that body uh, is a descendant of, of what I'm going to get to a little bit later on, the Evangelical uh, Synod um, of North America. Uh, but before that, I, I just want to state that even though... Um, in keeping with that heritage, uh, due to the fact uh, of the liberalization of the United Church of Christ and, um, how do I want to say this, the, the uh, strain away from orthodox and apostolic uh, Christian teaching, you know, the, the great deposit of faith that has been handed down to us throughout the ages of the church. Uh, due to that, uh, my church left that uh, denomination to uh, be, I guess, essentially, well, not independent in a way, because, uh, you know, there are associations, like the Evangelical Association is actually uh, the split from that that has, um, you know, happened 
are, are taking part uh, in the recent years. So similar to like um, the forming of the Anglican Church of North America, uh, leaving the Episcopal Church, the um, you know the the forming of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and, and leaving the Presbyterian Church uh, USA, it, or um, you know. Lutherans leaving the Evangelical uh, Lutheran Church of America over similar issues. Um, that's that's the uh, that's the same trajectory. So out of the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Association of Reformed and Congregational Christian Churches was born. And yeah, so what's interesting is you can actually be a member of a different denomination and still a part of this association. It's a, a, it's a loose association, right, with congregationalist polity, um, similar to that uh, of a Lutheran synod. You know, the, con the congregation, as long as it's staying within orthodox lines, you know, you're not going to hear from um, representatives or, or the, the higher uh, governing bodies of this association. It's an association, right? Similar, I guess, to a degree of that of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? You see the SBC going the same way as these mainline churches, and you're seeing these these individual congregations choosing to leave that um, convention or conference. Or, uh, yeah, so it's, a, it's an association, uh, I guess, similar to... Um, yeah, other associations, if that makes any sense uh, whatsoever. So it's not quite a denomination. It's not like a, an Episcopal form of polity, uh, which is top-down. Um, it's, it's congregationalist and its form of polity. So essentially, uh, what took place, we're going to go all the way back to 1817, uh, which... Um, there was a union made in Prussia, which is, you know, uh, modern-day Germany. Um, and bringing this state church together that was big R reformed and also confessionally Lutheran together in this union, this Prussian union church, state church. But, I mean, in... Any, any scholar or anybody, or I, I guess not even scholar, anybody that, that came from that background and that heritage knows just how bad it, it, it can be uh, having a state church. You know, there's no separation there between the church and the state. This, the, you know, they are one and the same entity. So, and of course, we know with the monopoly of force and coercion, that means that, you know, there will be certain power grabs, and, and essentially what took place is that the, the Calvinist or the Big R Reformed, um, I guess, faction within this union, it really wasn't a, a union of harmony. It wasn't like the united or uniting churches you see today that actually want to be enveloped under one big umbrella. No, it was pretty forced and coerced on people, and this led to a lot of... Um, a lot of controversies, a lot of even, like, um, violence. Uh, there was a, a point in time, I think, in uh, Mar Marburg? I, I'm, I'm terrible at German, <laughs> even though it's my heritage, yeah. Uh, where, you know, 
these these Lutherans locked themselves in pretty pretty much took the town and locked themselves in because what was occurring is that the um the supposed or i guess um the the prominent Calvinist view was being pushed on the Lutheran churches in this union and you know they were not having it they are uh Book of Concord all the way confessing uh, Lutherans at this time in period. Uh, so, they, yeah, they were just not having it. And what took place is this great exodus from um, the Prussian Union of, of the time in the 1800s. And you have, um, you know, Lutheran synods being formed in the United States of America, like um, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, and several others. I think there was like an Ohio Synod. Of course, we have the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. So yeah, like a, a synod is similar to an association. It's not, it's not quite a denomination, but here is where, you know, you have CFW Wather coming over. Um, but also at this time, well, clearly, like, later on, after this exodus from the Prussian Union, you have, um, German evangelicals also, um, immigrating, and they were of the Congregationalist polity. Again, they didn't like the state church because they, they wanted to, you know, be able to worship and, and um, the way they wanted to, without force, without being told what to do and how to do it, uh, or having some, like, state priests come in and, like, you know, bully a congregation, so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of Anglican friends, a lot of Anglo-Catholic friends, uh, some Roman Catholic friends, and they're like, yes, the Episcopal model is the way. You know, historically, yeah, that has been the case up until the Reformation, and even, you know, the uh, Church of England did retain the Episcopal model. Uh, we see early on, even the um, John Wesley, when he formed his own uh, denomination, um, due to the Revolutionary War, he chose the uh, Episcopal model for the Meth Methodist Episcopal Church. But I'd argue that that's the, the top down uh, uh, force. You know, you could have bishops going astray. Your bishop could be going astray. And you're still, you know, instead of having other bishops or, or congregations or dioceses step up, you are forced to go in whatever direction the, the episcopal, or the episcopacy, I should say, is going in. So keep that in mind. Interestingly, though, these uh, German evangelicals um, didn't actually have a problem with the Union. These are folks that uh, actually did get along, um, you know, for the most part. And, and so they adopted this, this model, this Union, but it wasn't forced. It wasn't coerced, and it wasn't, you know, um, state-run or state-sanctioned. Um, so, again, like, it, it, it's by association. So, uh, you know, uh, there was a mix of Lutheran 
and Reformed theology and heritage, and we're going to get into some of that theology. There was also pietism, a, a pietistic influence, because you see this was the time um, ramping up to the First Great Awakening, uh, and, you know, uh, you have this Waldensian influence still, you have this Moravian uh, influence still, especially in Germany, you know, think Herrenhut, specifically, uh, you know, the Czech Republic, uh, or, well, I guess Moravia, I guess it would be Moravia, uh, maybe even at that time. And yeah, you have this ramping up, so this pietistic element that actually comes out of Lutheranism, and, and people like uh, Johann Arndt, um, who, you know, pretty famous, famous, um, you have other forerunners like, uh, Philip Spinner, Spinner, um, and, and so these were the main tenets of this pietistic movement, the earnest and thorough study of the Bible, of the Bible in private meetings, uh, little churches within the church, quote unquote, which is, you know, like the Moravian Herrenhut model and what the, the small group or uh, band formation model or class meeting model that John Wesley would also adopt for the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist societies in England, Wales, you know, and the American colonies. Uh, point two, the Christian priesthood being universal, the laity should share in the spiritual government of the church. Knowledge of Christianity must be attended by the practice of it as its indispensable sign and supplement. Instead of merely didactic and often bitter attacks on the heterodox and unbelievers, a sympathetic and kindly treatment of them. So these aren't all bad points. A reorganization of the theological training of the universities giving more prominence to the devotional life. And point six, a different style of preaching, namely in the place of pleasing rhetoric, the implanting of Christianity in the inner or new man, the soul of which is faith and its effects, the fruits of life. So these were Spinner's uh, six points, and uh, a lot of Orthodox uh, Lutherans were, were offended by them. You know, there's a, because, you know, yes, to some degree, there is a priesthood, um, you know, a royal priesthood of believers. Yeah, and we're, you know, every Christian, whether you're um, of the clergy or not, is a part of this priesthood. Um, however, uh, God, it, it must be acknowledged that uh, Christ did institute, um, you know, a, a model. You know, he gave the apostles keys to the kingdom. You know, whatever you bound will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in loosen in heaven. So, in the Augsburg talks about that. I don't remember what article quite, but you know, if you have this divine call, you're not like superior to the laity. But there is a distinction there. So I, I could see where pietism oversteps that and kind of, um, I guess, uh, denies the, the Augsburg, the unaltered Augsburg Confession. If you couldn't tell, uh, yeah, I had to take a, a brief break there. I'm a, I'm a 
pretty big uh, lay historic theologian, and I like comparative theology. Uh, you know, I'm really influenced by uh, people in the works of folks like uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, getting back to this this immigration, this immigration of, you know, <clears throat> Scandinavian and German and different um, uh, evangelicals from Europe to the United States, in which they would specifically uh, settle in the Midwest United States, Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, um, uh, you know, Minnesota. Uh, so, yeah. And with them, they brought this Lutheran and Reformed and somewhat pietistic heritage. I do want to preface and say that um, having piety, you know, trying to aim or be a pious Christian it is a good thing and not the same as, say, pietism. Uh, I think Jan Gerhard speaks a lot on Christian piety. He's a really big uh, uh, German Lutheran theologian. Orthodox Lutheran theologian, uh, confessional Lutheran theologian. So yeah, pietism can be bad. Revivalism, uh, this need or, or burning in my bosom sense of things that that has led to like Pentecostalism and you know all these um, pretty crazy uh, revivals during the Second Great Wake. Great. Second Great Awakening uh, are problematic, so I, I could see why that's an issue, but I do want to keep that in mind. So the the denomination, the Synod, really rather, um, began as the uh, German Evangelical Church Society of the West. So think of it as like a mission church or mission society, and and the thing is, um, it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, you know, by uh, 1877, the Synod had 324 pastors. You know, they established a theological seminary. So, um, with this this background, um, the Synod the Synod was growing, and it decided to adopt for its um, uh, confessional documents or statements of faith, rather. Um, of course, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. In some sense, the Athanasian Creed. So you have the, you know, the ecumenical creeds of the Church Catholic found in the Book of Concord. But also with it, it, it adopted the Heidelberg Catechism, Luther's Small Catechism, and the unaltered Augsburg Confession. So essentially, uh, each church, each independent congre congregationalist congregation um, would choose, you know, I guess, you know, all of them would have adopted the ecumenical creeds, of course, but they would either go in a more reformed direction, using the Heidelberg Catechism, or a more Lutheran confession using the Augsburg Confession. Now, I happen to think that these are all uh, great, you know, doctrinal statements. And I, I it, like I said, I'm a reformed Lutheran, so I, I would lean more confessionally Lutheran in those regards. But with that, though, I, I thought it was interesting. I was reading through the Heidelberg, and yeah, I, I want to bring up some other documents to kind of show that it's really unfortunate um, that John Calvin's refutation of 
sacramental efficacy was actually, um, and I know it's providential, but it's just, I believe, quite unfortunate that uh, the consensus Tigonius, or whatever the Latin is, yeah, uh, was you know, adopted and then um, placed in the Book of Concord, which, if you don't know, it's just a, a set of um, the confessional Lutheran uh, documents compiled together. It, when the reality is, and I, I just want to get into this, um, after the fact, <laughs> after the fact, Kelvin went back and forth. Uh, so, I'm looking at the French uh, Confession, or the First Confession of Basel, and, and I want you to keep in mind that um, there was a lot of disputes after Kelvin, because a lot of these earlier uh, documents actually seem to be more Lutheran-leaning than, let's say, uh, whatever the doctrines of grace would later, um, you know, exposit, and what, uh, I guess, the... Uh, Synod of Dort or Dortrecht would decide. So you have like the the first confession of Basel or the the Gallic or French confession. You have the first Helvetic confession. You know even the Belgic. I mean, oh, more loosely, can be Lutheran leaning if you interpret it that way. I know uh, my Anglican friends, especially my Anglo-Catholic friends, say the same thing about um, the 39 Articles of Religion. You know, you can either interpret them, because uh, the article on uh, predestination is pretty, uh, not vague, but reading it on its face, you see a, a only a single predestination or election. You don't see this double predestination, even though, you know, some Anglicans would call themselves Big R Reformed. So anyways, I wanted to look at this uh, document real quick. What is this? Article 35 of the French Confession, or what's also known as the First Basel Confession. And out of this came the First Helvetic Confession, you know, so on and so forth. We confess, and this is Kelvin. Uh, Kelvin wrote this for the churches uh, in... Uh, Gaul or France. We confess only two sacraments common to the whole church, of which the first, baptism, is given as a pledge of our adoption. By it, his blood and. Uh, okay. For by it, we are grafted into the body of Christ so as to be washed and cleansed by his blood and then renewed in purity of life by his Holy Spirit. We hold also that although we are baptized only once, yet that. The, yet the gain that it symbolizes to us reaches over where are we at? over our whole lives and to our death so that we have a lasting witness that Jesus Christ will always be our justification and sanctification. Nevertheless, although it is a sacrament of faith and penitence, yet as God receives little children to the church with their fathers, we say upon the authority of Jesus Christ that the children of believing parents should be baptized. Amen. So, yeah, if you look at, like, Reformed, Big R Reformed Baptists, they're actually, or Baptists in general, or Anabaptists, they're historically um, on the outs, yeah. And, and I know um, they're convinced of their positions, you know, uh, citing Acts, you have to repent and believe and be baptized, and you get that Calvinistic rationalist, you know, um, I guess, liter literary view of scripture where, yes, this 
needs to take place in this chronological order. But they're kind of on the outs here, uh, so there would not be a disagreement with Calvin or Calvinism in Lutheranism or Reformed theology in confessional Lutheran theology here. Maybe the wording, perhaps the verbiage, especially when they use symbol or symbolizes. Uh, but the thing is, you got to keep in mind that, you know, it, symbol, like, the, the Apostles' Creed was considered a symbol. Uh, it, you know, these words and terms are used differently and theologically depending on the context. Okay, so Article 36, uh, we confess the Lord's Supper, which is the second sacrament, is a witness of the union which we have with Christ, inasmuch as he not only died and rose again for us once, but also feeds and nourishes us truly with his flesh and blood, so that we may be one in him, and that, and that our life may be in common. Although he be in heaven until he come to judge all the earth, still we believe that by the secret and incomprehensible power of his spirit, he feeds and nourishes and strengthens us with the substance of his body and of his blood. See, and this goes completely against what Calvin said in uh, the Consensus Tigernius, which is why I find it so unfortunate. Calvin went back and forth. You know, you're dealing with this trained lawyer who sometimes thinks too rationalistically, and you know, that's why, that's what Pieper in his uh, Christian dogmatics, that's what he would slam Calvinism of doing. You're being hyper-rationalistic instead of just trusting what the word of God says, you know, like with Luther, hack ist mum, and Zwingli, this is my body, this is my blood. So, yeah. We hold that this is done spiritually, not because we put imagination and fancy in the place of fact and truth, but because the greatness of this mystery exceeds the measure of our senses and the laws of nature. In short, because it is heavenly, it can only be apprehended by faith. So I think uh, parting a little bit here, this would be more of a receptionism. You you know, you have to have faith, whereas, like, the Augsburger would say, even if an evil minister administered it, or even of an unbeliever took it, they are still taking upon themselves the body and blood of Christ. There is no transubstantiation or even consubstantiation that takes place here, or receptionism in the Augsburg, at least, whereas this seems to be more of receptionism, uh, you know, and they were good. If he just would have stopped at, at strengthened us with the substance of his body and of his blood, we'd probably be more square than we are. Uh, unfortunately, he has to go on. Just, just leave it a mystery. <laughs> Excuse me. We believe has has been said that in the Lord's Supper, as well as in a baptism, God gives us really and in fact that which He there sets forth to us. So, yeah, the promises of Scripture are us, are ours. What, what is promised is what is truly promised. <laughs> and God keeps his word. Um, and that, consequently, with these signs is given the true possession and enjoyment of that which they present to us. And thus all who I bring a pure faith, like a vessel to the sacred table of Christ, receive truly that of which is... It is a sign, for the body and blood of Jesus Christ give food and drink to the soul, no less than bread and wine nourish the body. 
Thus we hold that water being a feeble element still testifies to us in truth the inward cleansing of our souls in the blood of Jesus Christ by the efficacy of his spirit, not the bread and wine given to us in the sacrament serve to our spiritual nourishment, inasmuch as they show as to our sight that the body of Christ is our meat and his blood our drink. And we reject the enthusiasts, get this, we reject the enthusiasts and sacramentarians who will not receive such signs and marks, although our Savior said, this is my body and this cup is my blood. So see, Calvin here, I think like, what, 10 years later, refutes his own sacramentarian um, bend. And again, I'm not trying to, like, play fast and loose with um, these confessional statements, these documents, but I think they are, I mean, first of all, as an evangelical Catholic, as a Reformed Lutheran, Scripture is, you know, sola scriptura, Scripture is the sole and final authority. So, but the, these, these documents are to you know, express that, to, um, you know, serve as a, a catechetical or uh, an instructional um, and theological uh, medium, you know, kind of how the Apostles' Creed sums up the gospel in Scripture, uh, you know, this is a tool to teach the people. So, yeah, I wanted to turn to the Heidelberg Catechism uh, real quick. Uh, question 20, Lord's Day 7. Because again, I'm not trying to say, well, first of all, what's so fascinating to me, and maybe this is revised because I am looking at it on uh, the CRNA, Christian uh, Reformed Church of North America's website, but I, I did a search and predestination and election do not come up, but I do want to give the Lutheran position on predestination and election. Regardless, just so we can square that away. But anyways, I found that fascinating. Question, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? Answer, no. Only those are saved who, through true faith, are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21, what is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold is true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. I don't think a Lutheran would disagree with that. What then, question 22, what then must a Christian believe? Answer, all that is promised in the gospel, summary of which is taught us in the articles of our universal and undisputed Christian faith, universal there, being Catholic. What are these articles? And then it goes on into the Apostles' Creed, and I wanted to look at their section on the sacraments. Um... Where did I want to start here? Hmm. Okay, yeah. Uh, so question, our Lord's Day 26, question 69. 
How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice in the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it promised that, as surely as the water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. Well, that sounds like baptismal regeneration to me. <laughs> Question 70. They even cite, yeah, citing First Peter 3.21. Yeah. What does it say? What it means. What scripture says is what it means. Question 70. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with the Spirit, Christ's Spirit, means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and live holy and blameless lives. And this is kind of bringing in the simile, right? Uh, Luther, Luther's simile, simul justus et peccator, you are simultaneously justified and still a sinner in this life, right? We're not going to be, we don't believe in perfectionism, that, you know, we're going to be perfect in this life. That's impossible. Okay. Question 71. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. The promise is repeated when scripture calls baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins. Lord's Day 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? So, the question is, is it the water... Or, you know, is it just the water? Could I, I take plain old water and baptize you, and then that means that the Holy Ghost was in the water, the baptismal waters. Um, I think that's how I interpret it. Again, a big R reformed um, theologian would probably disagree with me, uh, especially in R. Scott Clark, who also ahistorically believed that Luther didn't believe in... Um, baptismal regeneration, and yeah, I'm never going to let him live that one down. So, hey, you know, oh, okay. Uh, it says, no, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. So yeah, if the Spirit is not at work, you know, in the washing of regeneration, that's just the reality. Why, didn't, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? Answer. God has good reason for these words to begin with. God wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more important, God wants to assure us by his, this divine pledge and sign that we are truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. So again, you see spiritual being used. Um, and is it spiritual? Yes, yes. Is it divine? Yeah, I mean, but both are occurring, right? You are physically and, I guess, spiritually, I would say, being washed in the waters of baptism. Thus, you know, I hold to the Lutheran view 
of baptismal regeneration, but again, I'm arguing that, that if you look at these documents that came later from Calvin and from other uh, Reformed evangelical, you know, Christians, you know, you do get, I mean, I'm, it's, it's hard to argue, and I mean, I believe even in like the Westminster and, um, you know, the Savoy and the London Baptist Confession, uh, regeneration, that word is used. So it's just interesting. It's like, okay, well, again, you know, uh, what does First Peter 3.21 say? In baptism, which this, and this is the NRSV, which this prefigured now saves you, <laughs> not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now saves you. All right. Getting on finally uh, to the Lutheran view of predestination, because I know that's going to come up. And yeah, I'm just doing all this to like square away, like how can you be in an association that... Um, has these, I guess, the presupposition is that these documents are opposed to each other, and my point is, they're kind of not, depending on interpretation. So yeah, um, I wanted to look at this from uh, the LCMS. Um, with this in mind, is that I do hold, uh, I guess, a, a Walpharian view of predestination and election, and that I would reject um, the in new, I guess, what is in view of faith? Sorry, I'm gonna look that up so I don't get it wrong. Intuitu fide? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Which is a very Arminian position, as uh, Rod Rosenblatt would say. So, yeah, let's look at this. Uh, it's just so those curious, when I bring it up, is he saying, you know, God damns people to hell? Uh, for, you know, nothing, like, no. Okay. So this would be the confessional Lutheran in, um, position and the Waltherian position, C.F.W. Walther, the founder of the um, Synod. Of the election of grace. By the election of grace we mean this truth, that all those who by the grace of God alone for Christ's sake through the means of grace are brought to faith are justified, sanctified, and preserved in faith here in time, that all these have already from eternity been endowed by God with faith, justification, sanctification, and preservation in faith, and this for the same reason, namely by grace alone for Christ's sake, and by way of the means of grace, that this is the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures evident from Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 7, 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 28 through 30, 2 Timothy uh, 1, verse 9, Matthew 24, verses 22 through 24, and it's also, um, they also cite the formula of Concord, uh, page uh, 1065. I gotta take a drink. Hold on. Accordingly, we reject as an anti-scriptural error the doctrine that not alone 
the grace of God and the merit of Christ are the cause of the election of grace, but that God has, in addition, found or regarded something good in us which prompted or caused him to elect us, this being variously design, uh, designated as good works, right conduct, proper self-determination, refraining from willful resistance, etc. Nor does Holy Scripture know of an election by foreseen faith, again, or in view of faith. The intuitu fide position gets rejected here. Uh, as though the faith of the elect were to be placed before their election, but according to Scripture, the faith which the elect have in time belongs to our to the spiritual blessings with which God has endowed them by his eternal election. For scripture teaches in Acts 13.48, As many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. Our Lutheran Confession also testifies, page 705, The eternal election of God, However, not only foresees and foreknows the salvation of the elect, but is also from the gracious will and pleasure of God in Christ Jesus a cause which procures, works, helps, and promotes our salvation in what pertains thereto. And upon this our salvation is so founded that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Matthew sixteen eighteen, as it is written in John Chapter 10, verse 28, Neither shall any man pluck my sheep out of my hand. And again, Acts 13, 48, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. Now, I just want to stop here. This might cause some uh, anger and confusion. But I, if, if pressed, if pressed, how many um, doctrines of grace, you know, the acrostic tulip, do you believe? I would say... I believe in uh, total depravity. That is, we are totally unable to come to God without Christ, you know, without faith in Christ, without the Holy Spirit going, you know, drawing us to him. Uh, you know, the hearing of the word, using that as a means of grace, you know. So, as a fallen sinner, a wretched, miserable offender, I cannot come to God and be saved on my own merits, nothing in me. So I would agree with total depravity or total inability, uh, unconditional election, you know, um, to a degree, yeah, that some are predestined to eternal life, and this is, you know, the Lutheran position we're reading now, to some degree, a limited atonement because, you know, uh, there is a set number. We don't know them. Uh, nobody's walking around with red stripes on their back. You know, so this is why we preach word and sacraments, law and gospel. And I could see perseverance of the saints, especially here, especially in this cited text. So, loosely... If pressed, three, four point, probably Emeraldian. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, don't really think about that too often. <laughs> All right. Um, but as earnestly as we maintain that there is an election of grace or a predestination to salvation, so decidedly we do we teach, on the other hand, that there is no election of wrath or predestination 
to damnation. No double predestination, folks. Scripture plainly reveals the truth that the love of God for the world of lost sinners is universal. That is, that it embraces all men without exception, that Christ has fully reconciled all men unto God, and that God earnestly desires to bring all men to faith to preserve them therein, and thus save them, as Scripture testifies in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. No man is lost because God has predestined him unto eternal damnation. Eternal election is a cause why the elect are brought to faith in time, citing Acts 13.48, but election is not a cause why men remain unbelievers when they hear the word of God, you know, harden, hardening their hearts. The reason assigned by scripture for this sad fact is that these men judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life, putting the word of God from them and obstinately resisting the Holy Ghost. You know, um, what does Jesus say? Uh, so, like, for how long have I tried to gather you as, like, a mother gathers their hens, and you're, you're hard-hearted, you Pharisees? So, you know, people harden their own hearts. You know, they turn away. They grieve the Holy Ghost. Resist, resisting the Holy Ghost, whose earnest will it is to bring also them to repentance and faith by means of the word, citing Acts 13.46, Acts 7.51, and Matthew 23.37. To be sure, to observe the scriptural distinction between election of grace and the universal will of grace, the, this universal gracious will of God embraces all men. The election of grace, however, does not embrace all, but only a definite number, whom God hath from the beginning chosen to salvation, uh, citing Second Thessalonians 2.13, the remnant, the seed, which the Lord left, Romans uh, 9, 27-29, uh, the election, Romans 11.7, and while the universal will of grace is frustrated in the case of most men, Matthew 22.14, Luke 7.30, the election of grace attains its end with all whom it embraces, Romans 8.28-30. Scripture, however, while distinguishing between the universal will of grace and the election of grace, does not place the two in opposition to each other. On the contrary, it teaches that the grace of dealing with those who are lost is altogether earnest and fully efficacious for conversion. Blind reason indeed declares these two truths to be contradictory, but we impose silence on our reason. The seeming disharmony will disappear in the light of heaven, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Mystery. It's a mystery. We don't need to over-rationalize it, because that actually results in uh, distorting the very word of God. Alright, wrapping up on this little segment. Furthermore, by election of grace, Scripture does not mean that one part of God's counsel of salvation according to which he will receive into heaven those who persevere in faith, unto the end, but on the contrary, Scripture means this, that God before the foundation of the world, from pure grace, because of the redemption of Christ, has chosen for his own a definite number of persons out of the corrupt mass, and has determined to bring them through word and sacrament to faith and salvation. Amen. So, yeah, I hope that, that kind of 
makes it make sense <laughs> how how I can be in this evangelical evangelical association that can hold to these different seemingly um, contradictory uh, documents and statements of faith. So I'm going to take another break, and we're going to move on to the Cristo libertarian, small l libertarian um, final segment. Thank you for being patient, I guess. Um, hopefully this is interesting to you because it's fascinating to me. Again, uh, comparative theology rules. We'll be right back. So I don't know if you've noticed, but um, we have a little tagline that goes perichoresis. So yeah, I, I do rather. Perichoresis, yes, the Godhead, the Most Holy Trinity. Patristics, as in the patristic fathers of the church, the Orthodox fathers and uh, their works, as well as um, personalism. Now this term personalism, uh, you might not be familiar with it. Uh, that's fine. Um, so... I, and this actually comes from uh, Dorothy Day, uh, servant of God Dorothy Day, who is, or was, rather, a, a anarchist, Catholic, Roman Catholic, as well as, I guess you'd say, pretty much a, a mutualist. Uh, upon discussing the term anarchism, Dorothy Day wrote, We ourselves have never hesitated to use the word. Some prefer personalism, but Peter Marin came to me with Kropotkin in one pocket and St. Francis in the other. So she was an anarchist, mutualist, um, and, you know, I just wanted to keep it, the alliteration going, I guess, with personalism. You know, perichoresis, patristics, personalism, and politics. And with that, uh, I wanted to read a psalm, well, first off, yeah. Psalm 2, from the uh, New King James translation, uh, what Christo-libertarianism boils down to is that there is no king but Christ, and that we should not hurt people or take their stuff. So I'm going to get into some scriptures, and then I'm going to jump over to the first part of Luther's small catechism on the Ten Commandments, because I'd argue that the Ten Commandments are... Um, you know, it, it's not about disorder. It's not about um, being destructive for destruction's sake. It's not about political violence as the term anarchism is often used. You know, I, I love uh, personally Donovan Riley and the Band of Books podcast with also um, Pastor Gillespie where, you know, Donovan will straight up say, you know, his dad was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he has a distrust for the state. He would call himself an anarchist. Um, or even like a um, Reverend Jonathan Fisk, you know, he's been known to call himself a Ron Paul Republican. Bless him for being a fan of Ron Paul. Um, so yeah, uh, Psalm 2 from the NK, uh, New King James Version. And the whole point is, Scripture, all of Scripture points us to Jesus. Scripture contains everything 
that points us to Jesus. You're not going to get it as like some scientific textbook. That's not the point. The point is every word points us to the Logos, you know, as John uses it, St. John, uh, that the incarnate Christ in, in what he accomplished for us fallen humans, that is, for our salvation. So, the Psalms, you know, I, I can't read the Psalms anymore without seeing Christ all over. So, Psalm 2 is a big one. Uh, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Really interesting. It reminds you also of Romans 1. If you want to look that up, I'm not going to do it for you. Now, I'm usually with Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Obviously, he's another big uh, influence and mentor of mine. <clears throat> and his thing is to, wherever in the Old Testament or in the Psalter, it says, Lord... Uh, think of Jesus Christ. But here, uh, you know, we got to read scripture in context. So it says, you know, kind of when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, here we have God the Father, the Lord, and against his anointed, Christ. But but what is this, what is this psalm saying? Um, that, you know, um, the nations, they, they take counsel together, the rulers, the kings of this of the earth in this present evil age that we are in, that scripture tells us about. You know, you see Jesus tempted in the wilderness, and he doesn't rebuke. He, I mean, he rebukes Satan, uh, but what does Satan do? Satan tempts him with all the kingdoms of this world. How? Well, he's the prince of the power of the air in this present evil age. So Christ doesn't rebuke him there, but he says, no. My kingdom is not of this world. You know, he tempts him with food. And, and what does he say? What does Jesus say? You know, my food is God's word. Or, you know, I, I hope you get my point, and I'm not butchering that too poorly. Just got to think about these things. All right. Uh, he who sits in heaven, in the heavens, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So yeah, I'm following this context. Um, I'd I'd say this is this is bouncing back to Jesus. This is all about the coming Messiah King, Christus Rex. So the Lord shall hold them who the nations that rage against him, and his church in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. Um, so again, that could be the Father, but uh, it's not a bad idea to look at Lord in the Old Testament and think of Jesus Christ, you know, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You know, Satan tries to tempt him with this. This is not the way. You know, Jesus and his, um, you know, humanity, per se. But, you know, this was already prophesied, and this is, you know, no, the nations are our Lord's inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. 
Be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And, yeah, I would say that any government, any state that doesn't, you know, look to God and his word for their foundation is exactly doing this. They're, they're kindling wrath, you know. They're, they're not serving the Lord with fear. They don't kiss the sun. Uh, you, know, they, you know, they have their power. And I'd, I'd also argue that every state has to have this monopoly on violence. When they depart from God and his word, this is the result. And they will perish in the way, right? Um, you know, uh, the, the United States as we know it now is not what is prophesied in scripture. But we do know that the kingdom of God is nigh and it will come with the consummation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. So, yeah, getting back to that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, specifically just verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this is where you see the, the, the keys, the text, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, not the Son, not the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And uh, people will push back, right? Um, so we have this constitutional document. It hasn't really done anything to prevent this huge centralized form of government. And, you know, uh, Christians, good, God-fearing Christians, Christians with, uh, you know, well-meaning Christians will say, well, look, look at Romans 13. We have to blindly submit to the government in all things. Let, let's check out Romans 13, actually. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Well, even though... Um, that, that's bold here, right? Contextually, the Constitution, a republic, so on and so forth, isn't what Paul had in mind. You know, we can't um, be anachronistic, I guess. You know, we're thinking of kingdoms as governing authorities. But then it goes on to say, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Why? Why did God institute this, these governments and these authorities? For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. And I know the Just Thinking podcast um, with uh, Daryl in Omaha, uh, Daryl Harrison, uh, uh, has gotten into this before. But for he is a minister to you for good. Well, what happens when he's not? Or they're not? Or a congressman isn't? Or your governor isn't? Or your president isn't? or your prime minister, so on and so forth. 
Um, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Well, what happens when um, these nations counsel against God in his word? Take counsel up against him and his anointed one, Jesus Christ, who is king over all. You know, uh, what happens when they're practicing evil? And we got to keep in mind there were no chapter divisions or headers when, um, you know, the original Koine Greek was beaten, pinned by Paul himself as he was carried along by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, when in Rome, right? Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Again, though, again, no chapter divisions. What does verse 8 say? See, we, when people are appealing to this chapter, they stop at verse 7. See, we have to blindly submit to the government. But what does Paul say? Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are all summed up in this scene, again from the Gospels, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, is St. Paul referring to the law of the land? I guess this is the importance of two kingdoms theology, right? Coram mundo, coram deo. Um, well, no, he's appealing to the Ten Commandments, which we're going to get into uh, shortly, <clears throat> because I believe they are, um, and not to be anachronistic, I'm not trying to put the cart before the horse, I'm saying what Scripture says can very much be adopted by Christian libertarians, Christian anarchists, and it certainly is. But Paul is saying, owe no one anything except to love one another. So do not do violence. Do not be evil. Do not do bad works. Um, but the law here referred to is God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So I just wanted to point that out, too. Um, yeah, and I did kind of, I did kind of, you know, I, I do want to go back and say, yes, this um, Psalm 2, just to correct myself, because I kind of feel like an idiot, <laughs> Why do the nations rage? So normally, again, just to preface, you could typically usually take Lord in the Old Testament, and of course think of Jesus, because to be fair, to be fair, you know, they are distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, uh, but they are one trinity. They are trinitarian. You know, they are the Godhead, perichoresis. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is against the Lord, God the Father, and against his anointed God the Son, saying, let us break their bonds. So this is a, a conversation. It's like when, um, again, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down in my right hand. This is a similar psalm. I love it, though. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Um, God's not surprised 
at all that, you know, sinful human beings in huge collectives are sin sinful human beings in huge collectives. And it is true, you know, looking back again, alluding to Romans 1, that if you remain in your sin and you harden your heart against God and against his will for your life, you will be, you know, given over to the lusts and devices of your flesh. So, uh, what, what does libertarianism boil down to? And I don't think it's abstract. I think it is all about property rights. You know, you are your person. God created you in his image, in the Imago Dei. Um, but don't hurt people, the person with the property, and don't take it from them. So, we're hopping in here. We're going to jump in to the fifth commandment. You know, because the first, well, the first three refer to how we are to um, commune with God. And the the others are how we are to commune with our neighbors. This is Luther here. Thou shalt not kill. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need, in every need in danger of life and body. And essentially, I, I'm just going to say it, what, I, what these all boil down to is the law that St. Paul was talking about, that the Gospels talk, talk about. Love God, love neighbor. Uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What does this mean? Answer. We should fear and love God that we may lead a chaste and decent life in words and deeds and each love and honor his spouse. You know, don't cheat on your spouse. That's, that's harmful. That's hurtful. Destroys marriages. You know, causes all these issues. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not take our neighbor's money or property or get them by false wear or dealing, but help him to improve and protect his property and business, that his means are preserved and his condition is improved. Oh boy. After this past year, we need to uh, hear that one again. We need, to, we need to hear that one again, where all these poor small businesses were forced to close, while these big box stores remained open, you know, making millions of dollars. Uh, what does it say? The help to improve and protect his property and business, that his means are preserved and his condition is improved. Improved, not destroyed. The Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, or defame our neighbor, but defend him, think and speak well of him, and put the best construction on everything. We should defend our neighbor. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not craftily seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house and obtain it by a show of justice and right, etc., but help and be of service to him in keeping it. What is, what is um, Luther saying here? Even if it is by a show of justice or what's right or considered the law of the land, no, we should still help them. We should not be envious. That is a wretched sin. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, his employees. Just to be fair, 
to be fair, yeah, uh, this wasn't chattel slavery. This was indentured servitude, as in you owe me, uh, you know, restoration for something you've done, you've stolen, for example. Well, you're going to pay me back by working. Um, and, you know, people can buy themselves out of this indentured servitude uh, by working, you know. Uh, there's that parable in scripture where it's like the the one who is set free it, it didn't learn from the grace and you know the the graciousness of the one who set them free he then turned around and you know uh, chastised another person who then that that owed him money instead of like letting the debt go free he he didn't learn he didn't learn grace in that instance. Okay. Nor is made servant, nor is cattle, nor anything that is his. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not estrange, force, or entice away our neighbor's wife, servants, or cattle, but urge them to stay and diligently do their duty. What does God say of all these commandments? He says thus, I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, to love one another, and to love God. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all that transgress these commandments. Therefore, we should dread his wrath and not act contrary to these commandments. But he promises grace and every blessing to all that keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust him, and gladly so, zealously and diligently, order our whole life according to his commandments. Amen. So yeah, um, wrapping up here, what does Christo libertarianism, you know, what What does it all boil down to for me? And I am coining this, and not to get off track or anything, I guess. Um, but in a nutshell, as I have posted to Twitter, if you do follow me, at Evangel Libertas, you know, the gospel of liberty. Yeah. Christ is king supreme. No mortal rulers will usurp him or his church. Conservative or traditional libertarianism is completely in line with God's moral law, that is the Decalogue I just laid out for you, and how we ought to treat our fellow man. As the Imago Dei, we are endowed with inalienable rights, values, liberties, and dignity that solely are gifts from God, not constructs of men, documents, or states. Again, I believe laissez-faire. Free markets strengthened by Christian charity with the blessings of God are the only means of human flourishing and innovation. Completely free markets. You know. And again, I added Christian charity because once upon a time, be before we gave up, you know, our realm to the state, we were building hospitals, universities, all of the places of higher learning were Christian institutions at one point. You know, like Dorothy Day, for example, earlier, uh, built shelters for women and, and co-ops and all of these things. Friendly, godly institutions and systems don't require force and thus initiation of violence against peaceful people is an abominable sin. Yeah. 
and I cited uh, Proverbs uh, 6, 16 through 19, uh, which reads, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yeah, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, politicians, and hands that shed innocent blood, politicians, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that uh, are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and that soweth discord among brethren. So yeah, I, I hope uh, this, you can see now where I'm coming from, theologically, uh, politically, uh, and I hope this all makes sense. I know these two topics, um, perhaps, don't completely go together, but that's that's it. I want I want my politics to be formed by God's word and not just by abstract principles. So yeah, thank you guys so much uh, for listening to this first kickoff episode. I know it was a long one. Um, with that, I wanted to give shout outs as I'm so apt to do. Um, check out the Irreverent Pod. Uh, to uh, Church of England priests talking culture and faith. Uh, you can find that on any podcast catcher. Again, I shouted out the Ban Books podcast with um, Pastor Donovan Riley and Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Check that out as well. Also wanted to shout out, you know, again, the Reverend Jonathan Fisk and also the Reverend Dr. Kuntz, who have uh, this podcast called The Brief History of power on, you know, just uh, search Mad Christian Podcast or uh, Reverend Jonathan Fisk and you'll find it. And it'll be in the same feed that um, that uh, Reverend Fisk has his sermons and whatnot. So yeah, check all those out. Thank you, friends. Uh, yeah, it's in the books now. Mm-hmm.